Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about the omniscience of Jesus. This is this is a strange subject, and uh, a lot of different people have a lot of different views on the omniscience of Jesus. For example, in college, I was surrounded by a group of Christian friends, and we're talking about this very subject. And I'm pointing out to them that uh, Jesus would be receiving information. There would be information that's brought to Jesus. Oh, this happened over here. And Jesus would react in real time as if he's receiving this information for the first time. His emotions don't kick in until the, the, the details are presented to him. He is gaining information from these transactions. And the group was skeptical. But one prominent person, the, uh, someone who had uh, very much spiritual authority in the group, he, he stood up and he, he looked at me thoughtfully. He looked at the group thoughtfully and he said, you know, I used to believe that Jesus was omniscient until I came across this verse in uh, Mark thirteen thirty two, where it says this, but of that day and hour, this is the end times, this is the day of judgment, no man knows, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father only. This is in Mark thirteen thirty two. So this is a very explicit reference to something that Jesus does not know. And that was enough to convince him. It wasn't uh, all my uh, my pointing out that it's it's implied in the narrative when Jesus reacts in real time with real emotions that are spurred by gaining information. It wasn't that. It was this, this explicit verse. It's interesting in a lot of ways. It shows you with how people read the Bible. They, they come to the Bible with their presuppositions of, like, for example, who Jesus is. Oh, Jesus must have omniscience because Jesus is God. And they just read it into all the texts that they encounter. Yeah, they could find texts where Jesus reacts to information that's presented to him, has emotional reactions to this information, but they'll still maintain that Jesus knew everything. Jesus had this uh, omniscience inherent in him due to the fact uh, it's it's not in the text. You don't read it in the text. There are some proof texts that people try to point to for this. Uh, for example, Peter's denial. They'll say that Jesus predicting Peter's denial was proving his omniscience to the group. All right, uh, that James White will do this. But then he'll also say in the same breath that uh, this Mark passage that we talked about, that, that, that that's his humanity. You know, Jesus emptied himself of uh, his divine attributes uh, when he took on flesh. And uh, uh, you, you, could, you could watch James White hash this out in the Enyart-White debate on open theism versus Calvinism. Uh, in that he talks about these issues. I haven't watched it in a while. I didn't watch it in preparation for this episode, but that's a good starting point to see the current views of who Jesus were in the Calvinist camp. Another very popular proof text, and this is the disciples talking to Jesus. They say, now we are sure that you know all things. Uh, right there, omniscience. He knows all things. And uh, so what they take that as is, oh, we think that you have uh, inherent omniscience of all things past present and future and it's just not like a general like hey that guy's really smart he knows all things or as in when john says in in first john that we as christians will know all things once we're taught all things uh, all things is just hyperbolic language for you know like a ton of stuff you know a great amount of stuff not necessarily everything uh, but you're way wiser and more knowledgeable than everyone around you. You know all things. So there, there's nothing in the verse that indicates one way or the other. 
And uh, so you have to read your presuppositions into this verse, however you take this verse. But back to this idea of Jesus' omniscience. This poses a huge problem to classical Christianity, Jesus' omniscience. Talking about the classical idea of Trinitarianism, in the Neoplatonic context, uh, there's people like Ambrose, and he was big into Neoplatonism. There's a very good paper that explores some of his Neoplatonic thought. I think it's called The Influence of Neoplatonism on Ambrose. Let me pull it up real quick. All right, here it is. It's called Plotinus and Ambrose, and it talks about uh, the Neoplatonic ascent. Primarily, that's what it focuses on. In the footnotes, this is what he writes about Pierre Corsil. Corsil suggests that Ambrose envisions a complementary and symbiotic relation between Neoplatonic philosophy and the Christian faith, so complementary that their difference becomes imperceptible at times. His many articles on this question are structured to highlight in comparative columns, the many adaptations that Ambrose makes of Plotinus. So Ambrose was very Platonistic, adapted a lot of uh, Platonic uh, works into his own, adopted a lot of their concepts, and sometimes even the differences between the two are imperceptible. And of course, Ambrose was the teacher of Augustine. He taught Augustine to read the Bible uh, in the era of spirit. Like, uh, you, you spiritualize the text. You read it through the lens of Plotinus. He said he was happy he stumbled across the books of Plotinus. It was probably Simplicanus who, who said that to Augustine. To help Augustine accept Christianity, you read the Bible in light of Plato, in light of Plotinus. This is who we're dealing with here. So we're going to turn to Ambrose's work. And he was a Neoplatonist, and he adopted Neoplatonic metaphysics. And in Neoplatonic metaphysics, God is one. God is simple. God has no division, no distinctions. He he's, has to be perfectly simple. And so for Jesus to be God, the Jesus portion really can't have any differences between Jesus and God. So to say Jesus is ignorant of something, even though Jesus might be like an avatar creature of God, some sort of relationship like that, as Augustine writes in his On the Trinity, he has to have omniscience. And both Ambrose and Augustine deal with this passage, this Mark 13, 32, in which Jesus is ignorant of something, no denying it. Our first Ambrose reference is going to be coming from Exposition on the Christian Faith, Book 5, in which he quotes this Mark 13.32. Then he says this, First of all, the ancient Greek manuscripts do not contain the words, neither the Son. But it has not been wondered at if they who have corrupted the sacred scriptures have also falsified this passage. So Ambrose has to go about and deny that this passage even exists. He says this is in the corrupt text. This is blasphemous. He goes on to say, the reason for which it seems to have been inserted is perfectly plain so long as it is applied to unfold such blasphemy. Notice uh, the vitriol against uh, this view that Jesus is ignorant of something because it violates necessarily Platonistic metaphysics. These modern day Calvinists such as James White who claim that Jesus represents an emptying of his divine attributes. And so while he had like a latent omniscience, so he still retained omniscience, but he himself was ignorant of certain facts, just not in his Godhead, he wasn't ignorant of any facts. And so as someone pointed out on a, a thread recently, I don't know who the guy was, if he's open theist or if he's a Unitarian or a non-Trinitarian, but he, he asked the question of these Calvinists, how can... 
a being not know something yet know it. Here's the exact quote. Was the person Jesus simultaneously omniscient and not omniscient? Natures don't know things, persons do. And so I, I think that's a pretty good conception. And this is a conception that is known by Augustine and Ambrose. And this is why they fight against this verse so vehemently. They, they don't like the implications of Jesus being ignorant of even a single fact. And so they have to interpret this verse out of existence. Because if it is true, it undoes their Platonic metaphysics, their, their hypostatic union, in which God has no distinctions, no variance. And as we learn in Ambrose, uh, his, his argument against Jesus learning something comes from the Platonic conception of inherent knowledge, ungenerated knowledge, that is eternal knowledge in God that is not received from outside himself. And this might be one of our earliest references to this type of uh, active knowledge, this Platonic omniscience. And it's in this defense of why Jesus didn't actually learn any new knowledge, why this verse can't be a real verse, why, why this verse needs to be rejected as a later forgery. He writes this, I asked then whether he had this knowledge by reason of his being or by chance, for all knowledge comes to us either through nature or by learning. It is supplied by nature, as for instance, to a horse to enable it to run or a fish to enable it to swim. So he's saying there, there's some type of knowledge that's inherent, that is not learned, that just is with us due to the nature of who we are. Like, you don't have to teach a, a, a horse to run, is what he's saying here. For they do this without learning. On the other hand, it is by learning that a man is enabled to swim, for he could not do so unless he had learned. Since therefore nature enables dumb animals to do and to know what they have not learned, why should you give an opinion on the Son of God and say whether he has knowledge by instruction or by nature? Remember, in uh, Platonistic metaphysics, if God learns, then he is ignorant of something. If God learns, then he can't be God because that's change. That's uh, imperfection. And he says that. It's, it's very explicit here. If by instruction, then he was not begotten as wisdom and gradually began to be perfect, but was not always so. And so learning new knowledge perfects you. You know, it gives you a greater knowledge data set. And uh, if you're increasing in knowledge, you weren't perfect to begin with. You're becoming more perfect. This this idea of becoming, this is a very platonic mindset that if, if there are is change, the change is what's wrong with the world. The change is what's really immaterial. The, the real substance of the universe is the unchanging. And change destroys that. But if he has knowledge by nature, then he was perfect in the beginning. He came forth perfect from the Father and so needed no knowledge of the future. So perfection doesn't acquire knowledge. Perfection has ungenerated eternal knowledge in just who you are and what your properties are. This is what Ambrose is arguing, this ungenerated eternal knowledge that's not accumulated from outside himself. God doesn't look down the corridors of time and receive knowledge of the things that's going to happen. Instead, this, this is birth in him. Uh, that, that's always inherent. doesn't come from outside himself. There's never a time in which he learns this knowledge or else that would create imperfection. This is Platonic knowledge. This is Platonic categories. Quoting Ambrose one more time on the same topic of uh, Jesus and omniscience, but if you are willing to learn that the Son of God knows all things and has foreknowledge of all, 
See that those very things which you think to them to be unknown to the Son, the Holy Spirit receives from the Son. He received them, however, through unity of substance, as the Son receives from the Father. He says, He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall declare it unto you. All things whatsoever the Father has are mine. Therefore said I, He shall receive of mine, and shall declare it unto you. John 16 14 through 15, he subverts this verse. He says this is about this inherent unity where where you share all characteristics and there's no differences. And uh, part of that is omniscience, that omniscience is inborn within Jesus and the Spirit, the same omniscience that uh, God the Father has by nature of being unity, by nature of simplicity. He then says, what then is more clear than this unity? What things the Father has pertain to the Son? What things the Son has, the Holy Spirit also receives. You can't have any differences. They're, they're, they're all the same. That's Platonic metaphysics. This is the unity. This is simplicity. This is their idea of the nature of God. If you have one being of the Trinity ignorant of something, defected of, of some way, that, that's blasphemy, as Ambrose writes. It's blasphemous because it creates parts in God. It means that uh, Jesus is not God. It means there's, there's defects in who Jesus is. Augustine takes a different uh, approach with this verse. Uh, there's people like the Arians who deny that uh, Jesus is God, and so they point to these distinctions to show a separation in being. And one of these uh, proofs is this verse, Mark 13, 32, that the Son doesn't know something that the Father knows. And Augustine doesn't do the Ambrose approach. He doesn't take the idea that these are additions. These are late additions to the text by people who are blasphemous, who are just trying to ruin the Bible for everyone. That's, that's not uh, Augustine's stance. Instead, Augustine it takes perhaps a more intelligent and more uh, an innovative approach, and he just tries to say that the language doesn't necessitate that uh, Jesus doesn't actually know the day. Here's a few quotes from Augustine. He says, We therefore expose the blasphemous misunderstanding at which they have arrived by distortion and perversion of the meaning of Christ's words. So notice that that amplification of the blasphemy that Ambrose claims against those who think that Jesus was ignorant of something, that Jesus did not have knowledge of a certain fact. You believe that it's blasphemy to Augustine to Ambrose, because that, that means that their Platonistic metaphysics, it means that Jesus is not God, Jesus is not begotten of God, Jesus is not eternal, Jesus is not one with God, that, that destroys all their notions of the hypostatic union. So when James White does it regularly, where, where he says that oh, the, the omniscience was like set aside for the man Jesus, which is differentiated from uh, Jesus, the Son of God, or Christ, the Son of God, there's a difference there, and, and the Jesus part of uh, the Jesus, uh, you know, dual nature is not the God part. There's a separation. That Jesus the person is not divine. Is uh, when you really corner these Calvinists, that that's what they will admit when they're forced to. I've got maybe three Calvinists to admit that straight out, and the rest refuse to answer the question because that's what they actually believe. They don't like answering questions about what their actual beliefs are about the Trinity. And so, ah, great, they are all heretics and blasphemers, according to Ambrose and Augustine. Jesus cannot have ignorance. Jesus the person uh, has knowledge. There's, there's no natures that have knowledge. Uh, people have knowledge. 
uh, as our, our friend in Facebook uh, tells us and points out to us, Jesus, if he was ignorant of one single fact, if we're under the Neoplatonic framework of how the Trinity operates, Jesus is not God. So back to how Augustine handles this verse, uh, it's, uh, I, I like it a little bit better. Augustine does a little bit better job. Augustine's strategy is to try to contextualize it, saying that uh, instead of actually imparting uh, a truth about who Jesus was, but he was uh, just imparting the truth and and what kind of uh, relationship that God was establishing at the time that uh, the people there were not supposed to know the day and hour. And so the son is saying that he has ignorance of that because it's not to be revealed. So the truth being communicated in this is that Jesus knows, but Jesus just can't tell them the day and hour because that it's not their time to learn that yet. So we see down here that he says that this is explained by discrimination between gradual revelation and full expression of his nature and power. Both are utterance of the same speaker and an exposition of the real force of each group will show that Christ's true Godhead is no whit impaired because to form the mystery of the gospel faith, the birth and name of Christ were revealed gradually under conditions which he chose of occasion and time. So that's Ambrose and Augustine on if Jesus has omniscience. If you don't believe it, you're a blasphemer. You are a heretic. And this verse is explained through either it's a forgery or it's progressive revelation. I know it says that Jesus didn't have this knowledge, uh, but what it's tr actually trying to communicate is that Jesus is not allowed to communicate that knowledge yet. But, you know, to me, that doesn't make very much sense because it says the Father knows the knowledge. And what are you saying? That the Father can communicate it and just not the Son? Where are you getting the idea that the angels in heaven can't communicate it but know it as well? Uh, we, no, it doesn't make sense with what's going on there. So the, the more common sense reading of this passage and other references to Jesus and how he interacts with people is that Jesus gains knowledge, that his knowledge is not inherent and ungenerated from all eternity. People bring ideas to him and then he cries. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible, you know, if you're doing Bible memorization and you, you want a quick one, Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. This is after, therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who came to her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. So he sees them, and then it, he becomes troubled, you know, and then he says, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. You know, he's asking questions. He's like, where, where, where is this happening at? Uh, he's gaining information. He's querying these people. And then he's emotionally reacting to this knowledge that he's gained. And th this is this is typical, typical of what we see in Jesus, that when Jesus perceived that these people had whatever disposition, uh, these verses abound in the Bible. Jesus gains knowledge. Remember back to my antidote from college. These people, they, they skip over the nuances and the stories that they read because they have their theology, and the story's forced to meet the theology. I was reading this text today. I got pulled over. Babel's Tower Translated, Genesis 11, and Ancient Jewish Interpretation by Philip Michael Sherman. And he points this out, not, not necessarily as a criticism, but he points out that when people are reading the Tower of Babel incident, they, they tend to just bring their own theology into a text where it doesn't belong, that's not necessitated, or, or implied 
Uh, remember, the Tower of Babel is where God goes down to see the works of man. God goes down to see, which violates ideas of omniscience, to see eternal, ungenerated knowledge, even present knowledge of all things. It's a violation of that. And he talks about how people handle this. People who are Christians, when they read it, uh, this is what happens. Wenham, this is an author, Wenham, Wenham does not pass over the implication that Yahweh is limited in his knowledge. He flatly refutes it. So, like, you know, normally people will just skip over the implications of what the text says. Uh, but Wenham, he actually addresses it and says it's, it's incorrect. And this is what Wenham writes. God's descent to earth to view the tower is no more proof of the author's primitive anthropomorphic view of God than is God's asking Adam and Eve where they were hiding in the garden an indication of his ignorance. It is simply a brilliant and dramatic way of expressing the puniness of man's great achievements when set alongside the creator's omnipotence. Uh, <laughs> I think it's funny that they always turn to Genesis 3. They do the Moton Bailey thing where uh, Genesis 3, it's not clear that in the text if God actually knows or not uh, the location where they're hiding and asks anyways. It could be a known answer question, which is we're very familiar with. So it's not a very good text to say one way or the other, but they'll say clearly Genesis 3 and God's not ignorant of where they are. Really? Clearly? And then they'll, they'll extrapolate from that and say because of this over here, then this unrelated text is under the same category without showing that it is the actual same category. Moat and Bailey, they turn to a text that's less defensible they turn from that text and they turn to a text that's more defensible and they think those two texts are parallel. They're not. There's different details in the different stories. There are different narratives together. But going back to the actual author, Sherman, Sherman writes, Wenham's interpretation here, I would suggest, is strongly influenced by larger theological claims about the nature of deity in later Judaism and Christianity. It is unlikely that he would make the same sort of statement about Marduk, Baal, or Osiris. My purpose is not to criticize Wenham or Kasutu for holding theological convictions and interpreting Genesis in light of them. The purpose, rather, is to observe how easily and unconsciously theological conviction can be utilized to marginalize or deny certain exegetical options and privilege others. Brilliant. Brilliant. Let's read that again. The purpose, rather, is to observe how easily and unconsciously theological conviction can be utilized to marginalize or deny certain exegetical options and privilege others. Our biases and our unconscious theological convictions color the text when we're reading the text. We need to approach the text neutrally. So I guess the larger purpose of this podcast is, number one, point out how prominent Platonistic metaphysics were in the ancient world, what their views of Trinity needed to be in order to be a good Trinitarian Christian, a good uh, believer in the hypostatic union, uh, the modern Calvinists would not count. They would be blasphemers because they fundamentally misunderstand Platonist metaphysics, the implications of Platonist metaphysics, and what that entails. Modern day blasphemers, Calvinists, one and all, I guess, I guess everyone goes to hell with uh, the Trinity, right? No one understands it. No one understands it. Secondly, uh, we want to show how our theological biases color the text and how you can read something as, as pretty clear. I mean, uh, there, it's, it's, uh, it's a text that, that stands out 
And it's almost undeniable unless you're Ambrose or Augustine and you find mitigation techniques. And I guess saying that the earliest manuscripts, the best manuscripts don't have that phrase, if that's what you want to hang your hat on, um, I, I could see that happening. But the question is, why did the later ones have it? Did, did those later ones, were they translated by uh, blatant heretics who hated the Bible and were just... That, that was their subversion, adding a couple words. A couple words in order to subvert the text. That, that, that's their goal. Back to my friends in college. They will read all these narratives of Jesus and Jesus gaining information, reacting to things in real time. And they will also, at the same time, assume Jesus is omniscient. They are, they're not reading the text with specificity. They're reading the text and glossing over contradictions in theological convictions. Theological convictions, they will not give up unless presented crystal clear evidence rather than natural implications of just normally reading texts. This is what we encounter all the time uh, when you're dealing with Calvinists or dealing with someone who wants to claim that God has omniscience of all future events, that the biblical authors believe that they'll deny all the narratives of the Bible. They'll, they'll, they'll uh, explain them away. They won't treat them seriously. They'll turn to various proof texts. Remember, there's a proof text where it says, Jesus, you know all things, but all things isn't really explained. It doesn't tell us in what way does Jesus know all things. Is it, is it a general knowledge of all things? Is it a specific, a detailed knowledge of all things, all things present, past, and future? Is it just a hyperbolic statement about the amount of knowledge? It's not explicit in the text. They're, they're desperate for proof texts. And so when you, they're turning to these types of contextless and single verses, uh, that should be a red flag, that they really want their theology to be true. They read their theology into the text rather than gaining it out. A better way to know the extent and nature of Jesus's knowledge is to go over the narratives, the narratives and see in what manner Jesus knew what things at what time. I have uh, a partial, I always do these like a part ones, a partial on the Gospel of John, exploring Jesus's knowledge in the Gospel of John, and that's on the reality is not optional blog site uh, rather than the God is open blog site, but uh, I'll, I'll have to expand that and go further and do the whole gospel of John. But it's clear that although Jesus had the same type of knowledge properties that a lot of prophets would, like Jesus would know where someone's sitting under a tree and people say, oh, this man must be a prophet because that knowledge category is very similar to what a prophet, someone who had communion with God, that's the type of knowledge that's attributed to Jesus in the book of John. Anyways, this podcast has gone long enough. We'll have to cut, cut off there. Just uh, any questions, comments, put that in the comments section. Start a thread in the God is Open uh, Facebook group. Uh, thank you for listening.